Arapacus Auguste. Sounds like Harry Potter, doesn't it? It's kind of, it's, it's Latin, and it means the altar of Augustan peace, like peace be with you. Um, that was an altar that was, here's a picture of it right here. This was an altar that was consecrated about 9 BC. Let me show the picture here. This thing right here was, was consecrated in uh, January 30th in 9 BC. It was commissioned by the Roman Senate in honor of uh, Caesar Augustus' return to Rome. He had been gone for three months on a military campaign all throughout modern-day Spain and into France, where he completely and utterly vanquished, obliterated, got rid of any kind of external threat to Rome. Rome was at peace. Ain't nobody coming to Rome. And so the, when he came back, the Roman senators recognized this, and so they commissioned this altar in honor of him, in honor of the peace that his military campaign has brought to, to Rome. But not only was there external, now external peace to Rome, there was also internal political peace in Rome. You see, before all of this, uh, when Julius Caesar was assassinated at the hands of Cassius and Brutus, um, Julius Caesar's adoptive son, Augustus, and another individual named Mark Antony avenged Julius Caesar's death by going after Cassius and Brutus. And back in those days, when you went after somebody, you had your army, they had their army, and it was two armies that went after each other. And so the Battle of Philippi, Mark Anthony and Augustus overwhelmed and completely uh, dismantled Cassius and Brutus's army, and that was the end of that. But there was still civil unrest because now, after Julius Caesar, there was this political vacuum. Like, who was going to be the next leader? And back in those days, the next leader was the person who was the most cunning and who had the most military might. And then those two guys that were once working together are now at civil war with each other, Augustus versus Mark Antony. And then there was a great battle between their two armies, the Battle of Actium, where Augustus then overwhelms Mark Antony and his, his sweetheart, the Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, by which then Augustus then completely and utterly becomes the most powerful man in Rome. No more political rivals. There is political peace for, for Augustus, which meant also no political civil war chaos for Rome. So and uh, when it comes to the military external threats, peace. When it came to political internal threats, peace. This was the kind of the beginning of what was known as the Pax Romana. Those of you who were in Emmaus, taking Emmaus' New Testament class, you uh, learned all about this last Monday. That there was a sense that now there was this cohesive, um, you know, peace uh, that was you know, brought to you by the military might and the cunningness of Caesar Augustus and his military uh, band, his, his legions, if you will. And so, like I said, this was consecrated on January 30th, 9 BC. Four years, or five years later or so, after this was consecrated to, to his honor for bringing peace to Rome, the Prince of Peace was born in a small little town that Augustus probably never even heard of before, called Bethlehem. And back in the back, you know, alley of some manger, that here you have the contrast between two big people, Augustus and Jesus. 
Now, you probably say, wait a minute. You know, maybe you caught on to that. Wait a minute. This was consecrated in 9 BC. Jesus was born in 4 BC. I thought Jesus was born in like zero. Well, here's the deal. A little, little side note, and then we'll kind of go on from here, is that in 525 AD, uh, Pope John I commissioned a monk by the name of Dionysus to create this calendar for the church. And so he was the one who started the whole AD, BC kind of thing. But now, you know, some 1,500 years later, we got a lot more pieces of the historical pie, if you will. And uh, pretty much the historical data kind of shows that Dionysus was off about four years with old Jesus. And so Jesus was born about four BC, five years, only five years after this thing was erected. So you have the altar of the peace uh, of Augustine. And five years later, the peace, uh, the Prince of Peace was born. And you couldn't, like I said, you couldn't have two contrasting individuals if you wanted to. And you have this, and one of the interesting things about it is both of these men want peace. But both of these men you pursued peace very differently. And what's ironic and interesting is both of these men, probably the, the symbolism of how they would come about and bringing about peace was the same symbol. The cross. You see, before, even before um, uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, the Romans had used uh, the cross, but the cross was mostly used as threats to other people outside of the realm who were trying to bring disruption to the Roman Empire. Like, for instance, you may have heard of Spartacus. I am Spartacus right? And the big slave revolt that the Romans squashed, and they, they basically uh, crucified 6,000 of those revolting slaves, you know, right there at the Appian Way. But it was in 1 BC, now that there was peace, Pax Romana, Augustus was the first to really use the cross in order to bring fear of any political, internal political disruption, Okay? If you cross the emperor, you get the cross, in other words. He was the first one to really use it to anybody who would just uh, disrupt his Pax Romana. Now, flip that over to Jesus. And so you have these two people, one who's willing to hang people on the cross for peace. And then there was the other one who was willing to be hung on the cross for peace. The cross is really the Ara Christus, the altar of Christ, where Jesus Christ himself gave up his life for our peace. And so ever since then, humanity has really kind of struggled between these two ideas of peace. There's the peace of Rome and how we go about, we subdue and we conquer other people. We make sure we control everybody. We, we make sure everybody's doing what we want them to do. And as long as there's, everybody's doing what we want them to do, there's peace. And then there's the other one that finds a different kind of peace, a peace in God and a peace that's even willing to lay down their life. 
And you see with Jesus' disciples, and, and they really kind of struggled with this because they were born in a world like Pax Romana, like most of us are born. We're born into, you know, managing things, and we're born into if somebody's going to do us wrong, we're going to do them wrong. Or, or if somebody's going to try to take away our peace, we're going to attack them, we're going to go after them. And so they kind of lived in this world of this is how we deal with acquiring peace. But Jesus said these words. It's found in John chapter 14. He said these words. This was on a Thursday night, right before he was going to be you know, arrested. And then the next day he was going to find himself on the cross himself. And so he has his disciples with him. And he's beginning to, just to prepare them for what is about to happen to them. Um, basically a huge paradigm shifting experience in their life. And so Jesus says this just hours before he's going to get arrested to these guys. And he says to them, hey, I'm leaving you with a gift. All right, I'm taking off, but I'm going to give you a gift. And this is the gift, a peace of mind and heart. How many of y'all would love to have the peace, you know, the gift of peace of mind and heart? I, I would, right? Right? And here's what he says, though. And the peace that I give is a, is a gift that this world cannot give. In other words, this peace that I'm going to give you, the Pax Romana will never be able to give to you. Because even during those days, even though uh, Augustus was, was powerful and basically could almost do whatever he wanted to do, there's always in a realm by which you subjugate other people for your own personal peace, you're always going to be looking behind your back. Or you're always going to be looking for some ruffling that's going to be going on in your circumstances. All right? So even Augustus, even when um, and he died in 14 AD, uh, his wife, it was kind of rumored that his wife Livia had him poisoned in order to make sure that her son, Tiberius, would become the next Roman emperor. So even within the Pax Romana, there was not necessarily always peace of heart and mind, even for the emperor. But Jesus says, the peace that I give you is a peace that the Pax Romana cannot give you. And says, so he says, don't be troubled or afraid. Now understand this. This is only just a few hours right before Jesus gets arrested. Okay? When Jesus gets arrested, when this leader that they've been following for three years, who is going to give them this peace that they thought that he was going to give them the peace, just like Augustus gave Rome peace, they thought Jesus was going to give the Jews the same kind of peace through raising up of arms and vanquishing and eradicating the Romans. That's how they thought this game was played. This is how you get peace. And they saw Jesus as the king. They saw him as powerful. They saw that this guy could do it. But Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to give you a different peace, and it's going to kind of rock your world here. So I'm telling you about all of this, so that way you wouldn't be afraid, or nor would you be troubled as well. And so he goes on, and he says, remember what I told you. I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. And if you really loved me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who's greater than I am. In verse 29, Jesus goes on and says, I've told you these things before they happen so that when they do happen, you will believe. And so we know, right, just a few hours later, Jesus is 
arrested. And it begins to mess with their mind about how do we have peace? Where does peace come from? You know, the paradigm is peace is, is by getting rid of the Romans. If we can get rid of the Romans, there would no longer be oppression. If there's no longer oppression, there would be economic prosperity. If there's economic prosperity, we would all have peace, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm giving you a different kind of peace that is far greater than any of these things. Because the peace that the world wants to give you, it's shifting sand, man. Storms come. And you're already like, whoa, what's happening? And so even though Jesus says all of these things, the operating system within the disciples or the old school, Pax Romana, you know, Pax for Israel, peace for Jerusalem would come about the same way. And so when Jesus' arrest comes, do they have peace? No. They're troubled and they're afraid because it's rocking their paradigm. In fact, Mark um, in his work about Jesus's um, life and, you know, in, in his ministry, he says this in Mark chapter 14. Then the others is talking about Jesus's arrest here. Then the others grabbed Jesus, grabbed him and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest slave, slashing off his ear. All right. So somebody who is with Jesus said, all right, this is it. This is how we get peace. This is how we make everything right. It, you know, you make everything right by might. So he takes the sword and he slashes the ear of the, uh, one of the slaves of the high priest. Now, John, in his writing of Jesus in this, this situation, rats who that dude is. It is Peter, all right? So Peter's doing this because Peter's paradigm is all, you know, going on. This is the revolution, this is how we get peace, by going to war. Because we saw that with, with um, you know, we saw the experience with Alexander the Great. We saw that experience with Greece. We saw that experience in our own, their own time with Caesar Augustus. This is how you do it. A greater Caesar Augustus is here, and he's going to lead us into battle. It's time for the revolution. You don't touch the leader. But it goes on, and Jesus asked him, and he totally just, like, I can't even imagine what Peter is even thinking at this moment when Jesus says, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Peter's probably like, oh yeah, that's why I just cut off his ear. Because you're a revolutionary. Listen, revolution, it's time for the revolution. And, And Jesus goes, am I some kind of revolution?" You know, a dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? And then he asked the question, he said, so he goes on verse 49, he says, why, why didn't you arrest me in the temple when I was just teaching? I was there among you teaching every day. But thing, these things are written, or these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. And so it goes on in verse 50, and he says, then what happens? His disciples are like, wait a minute. This isn't the revolution. He's going to get arrested. You know? Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. What we also see in one of the other uh, writings of Jesus is this, this situation is that Jesus does heal the, the, the slave of the high priest. He heals him. And so there's this whole sorts of just like, discom- you know, just this 
just, uh, you know, um, just struggling with the, with the whole idea of what's going on here. I thought this was going to be the start of the revolution for peace. Now, Jesus earlier said, you know, um, I give you a peace that the world cannot give you. It's a different kind of peace. And at this moment, they're not registering. It's not really making sense to them. And so when Jesus is, run, when Jesus is arrested, they're running away. Why are they running away? Because they're saving their own can, right? So then we all know what happens after that. Jesus gets arrested. He, um, he goes before uh, the high priest. Do you know why Jesus was arrested? Why the high priests and they arrested him? John, in John chapter 11, John, um, you know, d- describes why this all took place. You know why it took place? It was because even the high priests of Israel believed in the Pax Romana idea. In fact, the Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. He was making the point that if we do not stop Jesus, there is going to be a revolution. And if there's a revolution... Guess what's going to happen? The Romans like their peace. And how do the Romans go about maintaining peace? They're going to come here and they're going to stomp us. So it's better for this Jesus guy to die than for there to be this disruption of the Pax Romana and for the Romans to come and to completely come and, you know, liquidate us. So it's better for Jesus to die. So they arrest him. And guess what? It was a sham uh, trial. And they go before Pontius Pilate because the Jews couldn't crucify somebody. Only the, the Roman governor could do that. And so they brought Jesus to the Roman governor, who was Pontius Pilate, who was, um, you know, who was there in the office for, for Rome. And he's there for Pax Romana to keep the peace. It was a sham trial, like I said. Pontius Pilate looked at Jesus and said, man, I don't think he's done anything wrong. And guess what happened? What did people start yelling? Crucify him. Crucify him. People are starting to get all fired up. They're all starting to get all like, you know, um, ready to go on this thing. By which, guess what Pontius Pilate's looking at? This could become a riot. Is a riot a peaceful thing? No. So what does he do? Pax Romana. It's better for Jesus to die than to have a riot. And so even a good man died in order to keep the peace. So Jesus Christ was crucified. All the while, in God's infinite, amazing plan, this was going according to plan, to flip everything upside down in order to give humanity a peace that's better than killing some good person for the sake of everybody else. A peace that is, that is better than just running away when there's injustice. A peace that is not just about economics and, and, and you know, things are kind of happening in our circumstances, but a peace that comes deep within our, our hearts and in our minds. So in the rest of the story, right, Jesus raises and rises from the dead. And so in John chapter 20, um, John writes about Jesus' um, interactions with the disciples after he rose from the dead. And this is what he goes on. It says here in, in verse 19. So that Sunday evening, now 
Just let's go back because sometimes it kind of helps with a little bit of time frame, right? So Thursday evening, he's with his, his close, you know, disciples that have been with him for three years, right? They've ate together. They have done, they fished together. They've heard a lot of messages from Jesus. It is Thursday night. It's their last meal. And Jesus says, hey, I just want to prepare you. Here's the deal. First of all, I'm leaving. But in leaving, I'm giving you a gift. And the gift that I'm giving you is peace of mind and peace of heart. So don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. All right? There's a lot of feeling troubled and a lot of fear that these guys have been feeling over the last few days because their revolutionary leader who's going to bring the peace, well, he's dead. All right? And they're running away because they want their own peace. They don't want to die. So... Sunday evening, so we just Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors. Okay? Usually, when we're looking for peace in this world, when there's chaos, we tend to lock ourselves in. And this is what they're doing they're preserving themselves. They lock, they, uh, meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders because they were going to die. But suddenly, boom, everything changes. Jesus was standing right there among them. And what does he say to them? Peace be with you. Okay? Now there's probably peace of like, hey man, don't freak out. Right? <laughs> you know, I'm sure they're like, whoa. So there's probably a sense of peace, don't freak out. But I believe also Jesus is beginning to tie everything that he's been telling them over the last few days, you know, what he told them on Thursday night, to connecting the dots to where peace of mind and peace of heart comes from. And he says to them, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. I'm alive. And so verse 20 goes on and he says, you know, he goes on. He says, as he spoke, he showed them his wounds and his hands and his side. Yes, I was really dead. This isn't some kind of illusion. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And so in verse 21, it goes on. And he says again, hey, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. I'm alive. Peace be with you. This is the resurrection. Peace be with you. This is eternal life in front of you. Peace be with you. In me, you have eternal life. Peace be with you. Remember when I said, for God so loved the world? That he gave his only begotten son, death, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. Peace be with you. Shalom. Because you went from all there is is the things of this world, the doom and gloom of mortality, to recognizing that through my death and resurrection, you are immortal. Peace. Be with you. And so it's time to no longer live your life in fear of death. It's time to come out of the locked doors into freedom of knowing that you are eternal in faith in me. So unlock the doors. Let's go into this world. 
that needs something better and bigger than a Pax Romana, than just the continuous rearranging and trying to manage circumstances and relationships and people that never seem to ever quite get there, by which we're always kind of anxious, stressed, or worried, or whatever. I'm alive. You are eternal. Shalom. It's all good. We know how the story ends, right? Unlock the doors of the fear of your own mortality. And he goes on in verse 22. Go back one more verse. I'm sorry. There we go. Verse 21. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so what? I'm sending you. I'm sending you out into this world to now be advocates and ambassadors for peace. But this peace is, is leveraged based on the fact that, I, that Jesus Christ died for us. And this peace is based on the fact that he rose from the dead. You are eternal. Later on, the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to a group in, of Christians in Philippi. He's in prison, right? And he's in prison there uh, for the good news of Jesus Christ. And while he was in prison, he writes these words in Philippians chapter 1. And um, there you go. For to me, Paul says, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. Now here's the deal. If you've never seen these, this verse before, let me just kind of help you to understand a little bit about what, what Paul is saying here. What, I'll tell you what he's not saying. What Paul's not saying is that he's ready to die because he's sad, he's depressed because he's in prison. And he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, and he's done all of these things. No, 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 no. In fact, none of those things are even, you know, make him depressed at all. What he's saying here is, for me, he's living for Christ, but you know what? Dying's even better. You know why I die's even better? He goes on and he explains it. He says this, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for, you, for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. In verse 23, he says, I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go and be with Christ forever. If you were here last week, I talked about, you know, Jesus basically saying one of the things that God has given us is himself. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, he said, now this is eternal life. This is the fullness of life forever, that you would know me, know the one true God and his son whom he has sent, that you would truly, he uses this term of intimacy, that the fulfillment of life is the reality that through the blood sacrifice of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fullness of life is the beautiful gift of being able to know God intimately forever. And so he says here, he says, you know what? It would be better for me to go. Why? Because I just want to be with my Lord. I just love him so much. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. This little passage right here, I call it the invincibility passage. Because when you kind of read it and you look at it, Paul had this idea. He's invincible. This is a guy with his buddy that got, his, got the snot beat at him, got thrown into a prison. And prison back in those days wasn't some fun deal. I mean, you were thrown in some kind of bat cave or something like that. Not bat cave, like Batman, but in the back of the cave, you know, where... You know, you're back there. You don't have restrooms or anything like that. And he's singing hymns of praise to God. 
How in the world, in a really crummy situation like that, could somebody have joy? You know why he had joy? Because he loved his Lord tremendously. And Paul understood something that a lot of us, you know, we tend to just keep struggling over, over and 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 over. That somehow, some way, that we are finally going to be able to manage this life in a way by which we are going to have peace. We may have it momentarily, but we keep continuing to struggle with the stress and the anxieties and the hardships of life. But Paul understood something. But that's just the broken world that we live in. It is what it is, in other words. He knows that this world is imperfect and it is vastly broken. He's kind of gotten off the insanity wheel, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. It's this whole idea that if I keep managing, if I can just get ahead of it, then finally this life of mine, I'm going to have peace. But Paul understood that this wheel just keeps turning. It keeps on turning until the moment that we say, you know what, my life isn't about the wheel. My life is about this relationship that I have with a God who loves me, who came into this world for me, to die for my sins because he loves me. There's nothing that can separate me from him and his love for me forever. And this 80 years, 60 years, 40 years, three years that we're on this planet is pale in comparison to the eternal joy that we have to spend with God. So one of the things that we're going to be looking at later on this year when we get to April is we're going to look at this gift that God has given us, which is we're going to look at it in a little bit more detail, this gift called eternal life. Let me ask you the question. When we talk about this series, make the most of what you've been given. Do you make the most of the gift that you've been given as far as eternal life? Do you wake up every single day and go, I'm alive. And I will be alive forever. No matter what happens to me today, I'm good. I have eternal life. Do you wake up every single day and you go, I know there's two things that are going to happen to me today. Okay? No matter what happens, I'm going to be loved because there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. And I'm eternal even if I die today. I'm good. Do you leverage that? Do you know in the early church, this was one of the biggest gifts that they hung on to every single you know, day of their lives. The reason why Christians get together every single Sunday. Do you know why Christians get together every Sunday? Because it was on Sunday that Jesus Christ came out of that grave. Every single Sunday, the first day of the week, to remind us that we are eternal. We are immortal. Death, where is your sting? So there's three things, you can write these down, that will happen in our lives if we make the most of the reality and the gift that you have eternal life. Number one is just peace, shalom. No matter what happens to your life, you have eternal life in Christ Jesus. So peace doesn't matter. You know, sometimes when, you know, it's one of those things where it's one of those gifts that maybe we use when we go to a funeral or maybe when we go to a doctor's office. But, you know, this is a gift that was supposed to be given to us to be used and leveraged and made the most out of every single day of our lives. I'm immortal. I have the gift of eternal life. Death, where is your sting? Second is priority and impact kind of go hand in hand. When you have an eternal perspective, when you get up in the morning and you say, you know what? I'm eternal. 
So I want to live for the things that eternally matter. Or as C.S. Lewis once said, anything that is not eternal is eternally useless. All right? That when we recognize that my life has an eternal trajectory, then I want to live for the things that, that last for eternity. You know, there's really only one thing that lasts for eternity in the things that in your life. It's not your business, it's not your job, it's not your career, it's not your stuff, your house, your cars. You know what it is? It's relationships. It is investing in the relationships of those that are around you. Priorities. That God, I want to live my life by which everything that I leverage has this eternal perspective. And guess what? That's what happened in the early church. This is why I stand up here and I talk about Jesus and not Caesar Augustus. Okay? Because the early church, they lived for this eternal life by which they were willing to die. Which brings me to the third thing. When you have an eternal perspective, you're willing to sacrifice for the love of other people and to do the right thing. One of the biggest reasons why we compromise or we use other people is because we feel like this is all that there is in this world. So I got to get mine, you know, because this is the only life I got here. And so I don't want to sacrifice for other people, you know. What about me? What about my needs? What about my stuff? What about this life? And sometimes we will even compromise and do shady things and things that are wrong in order to give us the shalom or the peace of Rome that we think will satisfy us. Not only do we not find that in our lives, we also create the havoc and the chaos and the hurt in other people's lives as well. But when we have eternal life, we can go, you know what? You know, I'm going to go to jail, but that's okay. I'll still love you, jailer, like Paul said, because this isn't where my citizenship is. My citizenship is in heaven. That's okay that, you know, Jesus died in his early 30s or whatever. That's okay. You know, single person in his early 30s. I'm okay with that. Why? Because I live with my father in heaven for all eternity. There's a sense by which we can live this life sacrificially out of love for other people because we know that in Christ we have an inheritance that lasts forever. And we know that we have a purpose and an impact, as, as Paul says, of, you know, that I will live because I know this is beneficial to you and I know Christ still has me here for his kingdom purposes. And we also, it's a blessing and a gift because it gives us peace as well. As we kind of transition to our time of just kind of, you know, listening to the things that I st- say and hopefully the Lord and through the Spirit, she's kind of stirring within your heart that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. It's not something that you pull out when you go to the doctors. It's not when you pull out when you go to memorial service. It is something that, that God desires for you to make the most out of every single day. So what I'd love for you to do is kind of started this a couple of weeks ago. Is just have a time of just, you know, of prayer. You can pray right where you're at. We'll have some of um, our elders and their spouses over here on the crosses uh, to go and pray with. Last week, I was told that I said our elders are going to be on the cross. They will not be on the cross. No elders get hurt in this activity. But they will be at the cross to pray for you. Um, Also, uh, it's an opportunity to go on the sides. You'll see the candlelights over there to take communion. To recognize that God loves you so much that he's willing to do everything for you to have peace of heart and peace of mind, even to die for you.
and not just to die for you, but be raised from the dead for you, to have shalom that you have eternal life in Christ Jesus. In the back as well, there's, there's our offering baskets uh, that if God is just kind of moving you and, and just in, in, in this way of worship uh, to ste- step out in that own sacrifice, to, to give towards his kingdom and to his kingdom work, to bring shalom to our community and to the next generation. Those baskets are out there as well. And so I'm going to pray and just feel free wherever the Lord is kind of stirring you to, to spend this time with him and allow him just to speak into your heart. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you didn't just settle for some kind of Pax Romana, a savior who's a political leader who would just come and, you know, by might and by power to do religious reform, economic reform, military reform, civil reform, all of those things. All of those things are nice and they have their proper place, God. But none of those things, none of those things, none of those things, none of those things can give us the peace that we so deeply need and desire within our hearts and minds. But you give us that gift because our yearning of our hearts is to be known that we are loved, deeply loved profoundly. And you give that to us. And our peace of heart and our peace of mind is 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 really all about our deep need for stability. And you give us that stability in the resurrection of the dead, that we are immortal. Thank you for that peace. And so, Father, I pray this moment of time that we just take to worship you, I pray that you would just individually where we're at, just to speak to our heart, whatever you want to, to say to us in this moment. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.